Well, good morning, church family. Hey, before we get started this morning, why don't we spend some time praying? Is that okay? Let's pray together. Father God, we come to you this morning and we thank you um, for how good and how gracious you are to us. God, as a church, we believe that the demons of hell do still tremble at the sound of your name. And I thank you, God, for a church who worships in joy and gladness, for a church that doesn't hold back. I thank you, God, for a people who are so uh, passionately pursuing you uh, that the demons in hell tremble. I do pray that you'll help us reach our city, that you'll help us reach the world as we commissioned two of our own to go this next week uh, to an unreached part of the world. We pray that you'll go before them, you'll go with them, that you'll prepare the ground, that many will be saved. We also pray that as we stay here, we continue to reach our community and our workplaces and our neighborhoods, that you'll go before us and you'll prepare hearts of men and women even there, that they too might come to know you as Lord and Savior. I pray as we open up your word this morning that you'll speak into our hearts. We pray that we'll hear from you, that God, you'll speak so clearly to our hearts this morning that we'll have no choice but respond in a way that's obedient to you. God, would you get all the honor and all the glory from everything that's said and done, it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen and amen. Well, listen, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. We've been in the book of 1 Timothy for now four weeks. We're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3 today. Most of you have it marked. If it's not marked, you can go ahead and mark it. We're going to be in it for at least another four to five weeks, um, all the way up to Easter. Uh, so 1 Timothy chapter 3 is where we'll be today. We're in week four of our series that we have called Healthy Church. Paul, in the book of 1 Timothy, is instructing and writing young Timothy on what a healthy church should look like. Healthy church meaning um, that, that, that Timothy is uh, the pastor or the pastoral representative of these churches in Ephesus. And Paul wanted Timothy to preserve the health that was within those churches. And in many ways, we're revisiting or visiting maybe for some of you the first time the book of Timothy simply because we are called to preserve the unity and preserve the health of the church that we are here to steward as well. Now, if you're a guest, you're jumping into the middle of this series, but don't worry, okay? I'm going to make this very easy for you. It will not feel like you're jumping into the middle of the series. But what I do need you to know as our guest this morning is very, very clearly, I want to say it this way. It's going to be really, really awkward and strange today for you, okay? So just bear with us because we're talking today about church leadership, all right? And for some of you, that bores you to tears. And you're thinking that has absolutely nothing to do with me. But I would beg to defer. I would say that it has everything to do with you. In fact, most of you, if not all of us in this room, at some point or another have been burned by the church. More specifically, we've been burned by church leadership. And one of the things that Paul is calling our attention to here is what it looks like to have healthy churches, but more specifically to have healthy pastors that shepherd and oversee those particular churches. So the most common metaphor that's used in the Bible to refer to the church is the family. We see this all throughout scripture. Paul uses this in Galatians. He uses it in Ephesians. He uses it in Romans. He uses it in 1 Corinthians, and we see it other places as well, that the church of God is referred to as a household of God or a family of God. Now, why would that be a metaphor that's often used within Scripture? Well, it's simple. The Bible tells us that in our sin that we are forever separated from a holy God. It actually says it this way, 
that we are now children of wrath. But once you and I place our faith and our trust in the finished work of Jesus, when we surrender our lives over to his lordship, the Bible says we move from being children of wrath into becoming children of God. When we become children of God, we are adopted into God's family where he is our father and we are his children. And as children, we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are a household, a faith family. We're the family of God. We belong to God because he's our father, but we belong to each other because we're siblings. We're brothers and sisters in the faith. We're a family of God. What I'm going to do today is going to be a little bit different. We're going to read 1 Timothy chapters 3 all the way to the end of the chapter, but what I want to do is I want to go all the way to the end. I'm going to read verses 14, and I'm going to read verse 15, to show you that even here, Timothy or Paul is instructing us to be a household of faith. And then I'm going to go backwards and work our way through the text, okay? So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 15, it says this. I hope to come to you soon. This is Paul talking to Timothy. But I'm writing these things so that, so to you so that if I delay, if I don't get to you soon, if something happens where you know, I get a flat tire or whatever on the way and I don't get to you soon, you may know how, you, how one ought to behave in the household of God. That's why Paul is writing. Paul says, Timothy, I'm writing this to you so that the church and the youth may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, the faith family, the church, the family. We, or which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So this morning, that's where we're gonna be headed. We're gonna be talking about how we are a family, a household of God, but... Just like God gave within the family, your, your nuclear family, certain roles for the husband to play and certain roles for the wife to play and certain roles for the kids to play, you know this. He's also given the church certain roles to play within it as the household of God as well. And one specific role that we're going to be turning our attention to today is the role of pastor, the role of elder, the role of overseer. That is a synonymous term. It's only one role. We say more uh, often here than not the word pastor. Pastor Trey, Pastor Brian, Pastor Stephen, you refer to us in that way. Many of you do. The Bible uses most frequently the term elder. It also uses in our text today the word overseer. It's a synonymous term. It all means the same thing. The big idea of today, where are we headed? This is what I want you to get out of today, okay? Healthy churches must have healthy pastors. Healthy churches must have healthy pastors. If this church is going to remain healthy, if we're going to be a church that fights for the health of our church, it's only going to be because we also have healthy leadership or healthy pastors. Now, what does this term pastor mean? What does this term elder mean? mean? What does this term overseer mean? I just told you a moment ago, the word pastor, the word elder, the word overseer, it is a synonymous term. But here's what you need to understand. Jesus is always the chief shepherd of his church. The church belongs to God, not to us. He's the chief shepherd. But the pastor, the overseer, the elder is a under shepherd to the chief shepherd. What does that look like? This is what it looks like. 
as we seek the face of God, you can trust the pastoral leadership because you know that we're only going to go where God first leads us. That's what it should look like. You got pastors who are seeking the face of God in prayer, asking him, where do you want to take us? What do you want us to do? And you got congregants who are trusting the pastor, who, are, who, who the pastor is trusting God. So we're all really following God. But there's four specific things before we dive into this text that I want to set the stage for what a pastor or an elder or an overseer is. The first thing that I want you to know about this role as a pastor is this, that Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. There's no pastor, myself included, that is the head of Eagles Landing First Baptist Church. No, Jesus is the head of the church. And I expect a response here. So I'm going to go ahead and pave the way for you, okay? Listen, at any moment that Jesus ceases to be the head of this church, at that very moment, this church needs to cease to exist. Jesus is and will always be the head of the church. There's a second thing that I want to show you real quick. In the Bible, the term elder, the term overseer, the term pastor is masculine. It's masculine. Now listen, this is going to rub some of you the wrong way. It, it is. I already know that. But I, want, but I want to remind you what I said last week. One of the commitments that we have made as a church is we're going to let the Bible be our final authority, right? In all things in life. So whether we like it or not, or we're used to it or not, or you follow me, we're just going to submit to the Word of God. In the Bible, the term elder is masculine. Listen, I want to teach you something that's really fancy today, okay? For one, because I want you to think I'm fancy. Just kidding. I really don't think you'll ever think that. But it is a fancy term. It's called complementary theology, complementarian theology, okay? I want to teach you what this is. Basically, God created man and woman equal, absolutely equal in every single way. We're equal. Men and women in this room, we are equal. We're equal in dignity. We're equal in worth. We're equal in value. We're equal in giftings. God gives us all gifts, some of us several gifts, we're even equal in evangelistic impact or impact in the church, period. We're all equal in that regard. But just because we're equal doesn't mean we're the same. We are also very different. God has given us uniquely different gifts. Specifically, he has given us as men and women different roles. But the church functions best when those different roles uh, function complementary to one another. That's how God has set the stage for his church to function. Complementarianism does not fight to exclude women from ministry. Complementarianism fights to include women in ministry. It says this, because we're equal, we have a seat at the table, but we permit what God permits. We, we, we per, you follow me? Like We only allow what God allows, and we, we reject what God rejects the role of elder is, uh, here in Scripture is, is designed for men, specifically men with character. Here's what I want you to understand. We miss out on what God has for us as a church family if both men and women in a complimentary way don't have a seat at the table. We do. We miss out on what God has for us. And for a long, long, long time, the church has done a really, really good job at suppressing women voices. And we've just committed that we're not going to suppress women voices here. 
We're going to submit to where Scripture leads, and we're going to follow that faithfully. So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. This is going back to what I didn't cover last week, and I know that many of you thought he's going to skip over it because that's the hard stuff. No, we're actually going to start there today, and I'm going to you know, get you all upset and ruffle your feathers, and then we'll move forward. I'm just kidding. You guys are going to be great. You're going to be great. You ready? All right, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. I think you're going to love how we, we set this text. It says this, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Eve was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What is Paul getting at here? First, understand this about Eagles Landing. We hold women in our church to a high regard. We want to treat women in a way that they deserve to be treated as image bearers of a holy God. We've had meetings here that I have been a part of where we have asked the question, how do we elevate the women in our church to give them opportunities to be on the stage, to be in front of people, to do announcements, to, to teach in women's ministry, whatever the case may be, if the Bible permits it, we want to allow it to happen. We invite them to be involved in ministry in a variety of ways. But when we read in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, the Lord here has something very specific in mind. You have to get this. The silence in this verse is connected with its context. Does that make sense? The silence is connected with the context. That doesn't mean that women come to church and they can't say a word, that they have to be submissive, and they can't do anything. No, that's not what it means. It means the silence is connected to the context. There are examples all over Scripture where God used women mightily for the sake of the church. Go back to Acts chapter 18. You're introduced there to a lady named Priscilla and her husband Aquila. Many of you know their story. What did Priscilla and Aquila do? They went to Apollos, who, by the way, was a very skilled and gifted teacher, and they instructed him on things regarding theology, most specifically baptism. Priscilla was a part of that. She went and instructed a man, a, a, a teacher, on things concerning a, a, a theology, and she was, she was paraded for that. She was heralded for that, and that was a good thing. You flip over the pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and what do you see the women in the church doing? They are prophesying, and they are praying, and the gospel is advancing. This is a good thing. These women are involved in a very strategic way. You go to the Great Commission of Matthew chapter 28, where God instructs all of us as disciples of Christ to go and to make disciples. He doesn't exclude women from the disciple-making process. No, he includes them as image bearers of his own, as disciples of his own, to go and to be a part of making disciples of all nations. We see this all throughout Scripture. The goal of the church is to create space where women can use their gifts to serve the body of Christ accordingly. And that's what we want to do. We want to create space where women can serve and use their gifts. But here there's only one area where the Bible permits women to serve. And according to verse 12, it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. This is what the term elder means. Elder means someone who teaches with authority. It means that they have an authoritative voice in the life of 
the church. So in the Bible, we see, secondly, that the term elder is masculine. But not only in the Bible is the term elder masculine. There's a third thing. In the Bible, the term elder is plural. It's not singular. So ladies, since I just pointed you out, I'm going to point me out for just a moment. Okay? Acts chapter 15, you'll see this in Acts chapter 20. Both places, when you see the word elder, it usually is in the plural. In fact, I am not aware of one single New Testament church that was firmly established that only had one lead pastor calling the shots. Not one. Every single pastor or every single church that was firmly established in the New Testament had a plurality of men that were actually leading it. What does that mean? It means it's a we, not me mentality. It means for me specifically that my title here is lead pastor. I'm to lead our pastors. But our pastors, I'm one of them. I'm not separated from the trenches. I'm in the trenches with them. We are called to shepherd the church, to shepherd the congregation. We do that together. Now, we're going to get into some specifics in just a moment. But what I want you to know is one man cannot fulfill every desire in this room. It takes, it takes a plurality of us to meet your needs, to shepherd your hearts, to care for your souls, to lead you spiritually. And oftentimes what happens is we sit in a room and even before we make decisions, we want to make sure we're in harmony first so that we can move our church in unity second. So when you come to scripture, the term elder is in the plural. And then there's a fourth thing I want to show you about pastors and elders. Elders or pastors are to shepherd the flock. We're to shepherd the flock. This is what the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5. We're, ex we're exhorted there to do what as pastors? To shepherd the flock. There's a chart that we're going to put on the uh, screen behind me that you're going to see. And this gives you four uh, categories for what a pastor or an elder is supposed to do. This is borrowed from uh, The Shepherding Leader, a, church by Timothy Whit or a book by Timothy Whitmer, um, and he gets four categories for what a pastor, a shepherd, is supposed to do. He's supposed to know, feed, lead, and protect his sheep. And then he breaks that down into micro categories and macro categories. No, macro being large scale and then micro getting down to the relational aspect of it. And I want to walk through just a few things here because I want you to see where we're going as a church family. First, look at knowing. This is knowing the sheep, knowing you, the members of our church at the macro level, we need accurate membership roles. Do you know here at Eagles Landing, we have over 10,000 members? And there is no way on earth that I want to stand in front of God when all this is said and done and be accountable for people I've never met and don't quite frankly know. We've got to reduce that. We've got to actually take our role and clean it up so that we can shepherd the hearts of the men and the women that God has called us to shepherd. But you need to know that might, that might upset some people. People have not been around for five to ten years, but when they take them off a roll, they get upset. But here's the deal. We have to stand before God and answer for how we steward their lives and how we shepherd their souls. And I think that's a beautiful, beautiful picture of how God painted it, how he wants this church to function. And we're just going to try to line ourselves up with the word. But on a more micro level, we need to know our, our flock more personally. So our pastors are going to spend time getting to know you more personally. You need to know them, and they need to know you. you can go through this. Feeding. How do we feed? We feed here on Sunday morning. We feed by taking the Lord's Supper and baptism together. That's the sacraments. So on a micro level, discipleship, mentoring, small groups, life groups, D groups, 
um, you know, equip classes that we offer on Wednesday night. This is how we are feeding you, leading you and protecting you. You can go through those two categories too, and you can see that we're taking our responsibility to shepherd the flock seriously. Why? Because elders and pastors, according to Scripture, we are called to shepherd the men and women that God has led to us. That's what a pastor, a shepherd, an overseer is called to do in Scripture. So with that being said, we're going to walk through this text, and I want to show you four quick things regarding healthy pastors this morning. First, I want you to see this. Healthy pastors must have a healthy personal life. Healthy pastors must have a healthy personal life. Look at verse 1. It says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires, you know what that word aspires means. It means if you go after outwardly, if you're, if you're pursuing something, if you're going after something outwardly, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, pastor or elder, he desires, you know what that word desires means? It means it's a compassionate compulsion that's on the inside of you. You aspire, you go after it. You desire, it's a passionate compulsion on the inside of you. He says he desires a noble task. What is Paul getting at in this text? He's saying that the pastor, the elder, the shepherd, he ought to find great joy and great delight in his role as a pastor. It should bring him life that he gets to do this. It should be life-giving to him and his family that he gets to shepherd the flock that God has entrusted to him. Now listen, that does not mean that pastoring, shepherding people is going to be easy. In fact, pastoring is going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. But I'm a dad, and I absolutely love being a dad. There are few things in all of life that thrill me more than being a father to my children. But listen, being a dad is not easy at all. It's tough. In fact, parenting is one of the most difficult things I've ever done. But I love it. I love being a father. And the same thing is true about pastoring and shepherding. Just because, just because it's difficult doesn't mean that, you, you know, that we, we can't love it. We love doing it. You have to love doing it. But you also need to understand that it's also going to have its difficult days and it's going to have its great days. See, being a pastor is a response to the Spirit of God's work within you. That's what Timothy is, is learning here from uh, his mentor, Paul. You, you pursue something on the outside because we are being driven by someone on the inside. That passionate compulsion that the Spirit of God puts in us is what drives us through thick and thin, to find delight and great joy in shepherding God's people. Can I tell you something this morning? There are a lot of pastors who aspire without desire. They aspire the role, they aspire the title, they aspire the position, but quite frankly, they have no passionate compulsion on the inside to do the work that's hard to do. You've been in churches where they exist. Some of them are in our own community. And God is warning us against that. As a pastor, we cannot aspire something that we don't have a desire, passionate compulsion to actually do. There are men who go after something on the outside, but they lack the drive on the inside. More and more, every single day, I have seen this. I meet with pastors several times a month. And one thing that always floors me is how apathetic 
pastors are coming are becoming towards the lost. Not only the lost, but just caring for, for their own individual congregations. It is heartbreaking when you start to see it. I start to ask this question. I mean, who cares more about the souls of men? The demons of hell or pastors? And the, the answer is rather clear. It's the demons of hell because they're relentless in their pursuit of the souls of men. And here we are standing idly by, rolling our eyes and twiddling our thumbs, doing absolutely nothing about the lostness that we see invading our communities and our world. Church family, this must not be said about us. Listen, we can't let the demons of hell be more passionate about the souls of men than we are. We can't let it happen. There has to be, not only within our pastoral staff, but there has to be a passionate compulsion within every single member of our church that wants to see lost saved, that wants to see divided homes unified, that wants to see the church of God stand as a beacon of hope and life in the community in which she exists. And that happens when the Spirit of God stirs our soul in such a way that we don't get distracted by sidebar conversations. We focus on the task at hand and we do the Lord's work the Lord's way. We make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. This is what the personal life of a pastor should look like. He says in verse 2, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. Paul says this is the qualifications for men who assume the role as pastor. Do you realize that these qualifications are observable in nature? They're observable in nature. You should see this lived out in your pastoral staff. But also, I find very interesting, every single one of these qualifications in the original language are mentioned in the masculine, not the feminine or neutral. Again, further validating what we said at the very beginning. He begins by saying they're above reproach. This word above reproach is actually the umbrella by which every single qualification exists under. Every single one, there's 12 of them. Okay, we're gonna walk through all 12 of them. We're gonna divide them into three categories. I'm gonna go through the first 10, and then I'm gonna go through the 11th one, and then the 12th one. But above reproach is the umbrella here. It covers all of them, but this is what Paul is doing. It's like he's saying, hey, just because I know that some knucklehead is going to think that above reproach is way too general, I'm going to get really, really specific with you, okay? That's what Paul is saying. And you know, just like I do, that we need that. We need that. So the word above reproach first means that he's a child of God. I mean, that seems like it's the obvious, but it's sad that we need to state it, that a pastor should have evidence that he's a child of the one true living God that he lives his life in submission to God's authority, namely, he lives by the book. He doesn't submit to what his mom and dad wants him to submit to. He doesn't care about what the culture is trying to twist him to believe. Instead, he sticks to the authority of God's word, and he allows Christ to reign supreme in his life in all areas. He's above reproach. He isn't going to be sinless. He's not going to be perfect. But he's going to pursue perfection because he wants to exhibit the holiness that the Lord has. Pursue peace with all men and be holy, because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And the pastor understands that in a very interesting way. That in order for people to see Jesus in me, I have to pursue who he is every single day. The pastor also, living above reproach, finds great joy and great delight in protecting not only his own integrity, 
But more importantly, he protects the integrity of the gospel, the church, and his family. He takes that seriously. He lives in a way that's above reproach. Now, under this umbrella, we're going to walk through each qualification very concisely today. The first thing he says is the pastor is the husband of one wife. That literally translates that he's a one-woman man. What does that actually mean, though? It means that your pastors, your staff, your elders should not be found flirting with women who are not his wife. That's what it means. That they are faithful and true to their one wife that they are married to. That's what it means. They're a one-woman man. But secondly, they're sober-minded. What does that mean? It means that this pastor thinks well. He has good judgment. You can trust the judgment, and you can ask him questions, and you can trust that the that, that the feedback that you're going to get, the counsel that you're going to get, it's not going to originate from opinion. It's going to originate from the word. He has good judgment. He's self-controlled. That means his appetite, his desires, they are under the control of the Holy Spirit of God. Now listen, we don't talk about this a lot in the church, but gluttony is a part of this. That even in the way that we eat and we consume things that are freedoms to us, we have to be controlled in how we do it respectable. He lives in such a way that garners the respect of other people. I can do that. I can get behind that guy because he lives in a way that honors God. At least he strives to. He's hospitable. That's number five. What does hospitable mean? We see this in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. It means that your pastor has a deep love for strangers. That's literally the word. Aliens, strangers, really sinners is how we would translate that. He has a deep love for strangers, and he has a deep love for sinners. He's able to teach. Now, you want to highlight this one because this is the distinction that's drawn between a pastor and a deacon. A deacon doesn't have to be able to teach. A pastor has to be able to teach. Now, listen, you can meet every qualification, but if you can't teach, you can't be a pastor. You have to be able to teach, and it's not like he's cutting people off. It's just a role, a gift that he has given certain people to be able to fulfill the life of the church, so able to teach. What this actually means is that he has sound doctrine. He can teach the word of God rightly. It also goes further to say that if he's teaching the word of God, then he enjoys studying the word of God. And can I tell you, as one of your pastors, that one of the greatest delights in my life is not teaching the word of God, it's actually the studying to teach the word of God. Like, I find great delight in the preparation of the sermon part. Uh, It's not always great and it's not always good. What I mean by that is like, it's sometimes like a knife in the heart because it hurts when you have to confront yourself with the reality of God's word. Uh, but I love that process of it, the refining work that goes on in the pastor's study. It's a beautiful thing. He says, seventh, <clears throat> he's not a drunkard. What does that actually mean? Listen, if your pastor is best friend with Jack Daniels, he's probably not the guy that you want leading your church. I mean, that's what he's saying. Like, if Jose Cuervo is, is your pastor's buddy, like, he's probably not the guy for you. That's all it's saying, okay? And then it goes further. Again, he's already covered self-control. This is just more specific. And then he goes on to say, not violent, but gentle. I mean, he cares for people. He cares for them with his words, and he cares for them with his actions. He's not quarrelsome. That means he's not going around just trying to pick a fight with everybody. And you know people who do this, they just want to argue, and they just want to fight, and they're just looking for a good fight to get into. He says he's not a lover of money. One of my friends said it this way, if a guy is going into ministry for money, that proves that he's not intelligent at all. 
And it's true. But what, what Paul's really getting at is the heart of your pastor is not governed by material possessions and things of the world. That heart of your pastor is governed by God and governed by God alone. See, we look at this list and we wash our hands clean and we say, you know what? Thank God that that's the qualifications for them and not for me. In reality, what Paul was saying is that this should be the pursuit of every Christian man or woman in the church. We should strive and aspire to live our lives in this way. So in many ways for you this morning, this is a good tool for you to use to say, how am I measuring up in these specific areas? But what it is saying is that for your pastors, as you observe their lives, there's no doubt, little to no doubt, that, those types of, that these qualifications, they actually meet. A healthy pastor must have a healthy personal life. There's a second thing this morning. Healthy pastors must have a healthy home life. Healthy home life. This is number 10 on the list of qualifications, or 11, sorry. He says he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In other words, Paul's saying, hey, as a pastor, as a shepherd, as an overseer, you need to love Jesus, and you need to be a loving husband, and you need to be a loving father to your kids. It's a requirement. Now, is being married a requirement to be a pastor? No. Paul wasn't married himself, as far as we know. So being married isn't, isn't the point here. The point is, is if you are married, you're faithfully loving your wife. And if you have kids, you're faithfully leading and loving them as well. You manage your household well. Listen, healthy pastors must live out the gospel in their home. They must live out the gospel in front of the people who are closest to them. And that's their wife and their kids. They should be able to say, hey, I, I know my dad's not perfect. I know my husband's not perfect. But I also know that he strives to live his life in this way. The pastor should care for, lead, and serve the people that are closest to him. The people in his home. Dr. Aiken, he's the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. I had a stint in my life, about two years, where I got to sit up under him and just kind of be mentored by him with about four or five other guys. And I remember one of the first things that he said to us as seminary students. Seminary is just a fancy school that you go to to study theology and divinity and all of that. So we're here, we're at, at the table with my president at Applebee's in Wake Forest. I remember him sharing this. He said, hey, if you're going to get married or if you're going to pastor a church in any capacity, there's one thing you need to do, you must do. And we're waiting for it. We're like leaning in, this is going to be good. And he says, you need to get a job at Applebee's or Chili's, and you need to be a waiter. And we're thinking, that's not what we thought you were going to say. Well, why, Dr. Aiken? Like, why do you think we need to be a waiter at a restaurant in order to be a good husband or to be a good pastor? Because what you do as a waiter is you have to put the interests and needs of others above your own constantly. And not only that, but, but you, have to, you have to assume some things that, that you know, you don't always naturally just assume. In other words, if you go to a table and you have a family that you're serving and their glass is half empty or half full, however you look at it, you have to anticipate that only in a matter of minutes that's going to go from half full to a quarter full. Or, you know, not a quarter full, but a quarter empty, whatever it's called. You follow me? And he says, so you anticipate what they're going to need and then you respond to that need. It causes you to keep the interests of other people 
the needs of other people in front of you at all times. And man, was he right. I got a job at Chili's and I learned quickly that it's stressful, for one. Restaurant industry is a really stressful job. But not only is it stressful, but it teaches you a lot about yourself. I remember going back in that kitchen saying, I don't know who that man is, but my goodness, I'm about to spit in his drink. I mean, <laughs> he's just rude. You know, you follow me, like, and some of you, you, you've been that guy. We've all been that guy before. But that's how you, and you have to learn. You have to learn that that's not the godly approach to things. That's not how the Lord would respond. And you have to start training yourself to treat people, even when you don't get treated rightly, a different way. This is going to be how we land it. If we can't provide for, if we can't protect, if we can't care for the people in our homes, how are we going to care for, provide, and protect for the people in our churches? I learned a lot about being a husband. I learned about washing dishes, and I learned about picking up bussing tables, and I learned about vacuuming and sweeping floors. I learned a lot of that from Chili's. My wife gets to reap the benefit of a little bit of that today, just a little bit of that. Healthy pastors have a healthy home life. Healthy pastors have a healthy spiritual life. We're going to fly through this one. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. All he's saying is young pastors have uh, more susceptibility to sin. Um, In fact, the sin that he specifically mentions here, I believe, is pride. That as they begin to learn new things about God, uh, they just look for an argument so that they can prove how intelligent they're becoming to other people. And I'm telling you, because I've been that seminary student before, I would come home to my mom and dad and push and challenge every thought that they've ever had. And I'd come home to my church and push and challenge every thought that they ever taught me. Why? Because I was learning new stuff, and now I know a lot, and I know more than you, and I want to go and prove it. You don't need that kind of pastor. That's what he's saying. The term elder speaks of spiritual maturity. So think about it this way. If you were in need of a root canal today, do you want the endodontist to perform that root canal or do you want a student at Darton Community College to perform that root canal? Let me tell you the answer. You want the endodontist to do it. How do I know? Because my first root canal I ever had was done at UNC Dental School and UNC has a great dental school. All right, but here's what it looked like. I would go in, I'd sit in a chair for about five hours, and if I'm, if I'm lying, I'm dying. But like, I'd sit there forever. And they would drill a hole in your tooth, and then they'd take this little device, and they'd just screw it, and pull it, screw it, and pull it, screw it, and pull it. And they did this for hours. Like, they had to renumb you because your numbness already wore off. And then they had to, every single thing that they did, they'd have to call the actual doctor over to check everything that they have done to make sure that they're doing it right. And it just took not only five hours for one root canal, like I'm talking about five different days of five hours sitting in one chair doing one root canal. And endodontist, you go for an hour, he drills, and it's like changing tires on a car. It's like NASCAR, and you're done. And it's done right, right? You don't have to go back. Jesse Welliver, I was telling Jesse about this. It's like, I'm going to use this illustration um, on Sunday. He said, can I tell you about my dental experience? I said, yeah. He said, when I was at Southeastern, actually, same school you went to, um, I went to, I had a root canal. A tooth chipped and fell out, and I had to go get a root canal. And he said, the, the actual uh, student that was doing my root canal, I had a student that did mine too. And he said, the student that did, did it wrong. And I said, what do you mean he did it wrong? Like, he did the wrong tooth. And I'm like, whoa, that's bad stuff right there. That's stuff. All right. You don't want that kind of pastor. Uh, you, you want somebody who's been there, who's studied, who's done it to lead you. All right, let's move on. Healthy pastors must have a healthy spiritual life. They have to have a sense of spiritual maturity. Healthy pastors must have a healthy public life as well. Moreover, 
He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snares of the devil. It's not about those only inside the church who, that should respect him, but also those people who are outside the church should respect him as well. Now, in closing this morning, what I want to do is something very interesting. We talked about the importance of praying for our neighbors and the nations, and today I want to encourage you to pray specifically for, because the Bible instructs us to do so, your pastors. So this morning, I'm going to invite all of our pastors up to the stage. Our leadership team, they're going to come with them. And I want you to see who the pastors of this church are. And I want you to be able to put faces with names so that you can know who is biblically, y'all go ahead and move, who's biblically responsible for caring and shepherding your souls. Many of these guys you already know because they're in the trenches with you every single day. And what we're going to do is we're going to have our leadership team who's going to come with them and voice a prayer over our pastors. And here's what I'm hoping you can do as we move forward as a church. I want to encourage you with four prayer points that you can pray for our pastors every single day. Write it down, put it in your Bible, put it on a note card, but I want you praying for these men as often as the Spirit of God recalls them to your life. Here's the four prayer points. First, pray for their personal life. Straight from what we talked about today. Pray for their personal life. Pray for their home life. Pray for their spiritual life. And pray forth for their public life. Ask God to help these men be above reproach in everything that they do. You need to understand that these men behind me are men that are on the front lines of ministry. Every single day, they're having to fight against the schemes of the devil. Every single day, there's a target on their chest and a target on their back that the enemy is trying to hit in every way possible. If he can't make it through the front door, he tries the back door. If the back door is closed, he tries the windows. If the windows are closed, he goes through the chimney. Like he does everything he can to get inside these men's lives. And, and they need you praying fervently for them to be protected against the enemy's snares. So real quick this morning, I have Mr. Art. Mr. Art is a member of our church, Art Folks. He's a member of our church, but Art has a huge love in his heart for pastors. And I've asked Art, who's been in ministry for what, over 20 to 30 years, he's been in ministry serving the Lord faithfully to voice a prayer over these men. What I wanna ask you to do is to join me just symbolically by laying out your hand as if we're laying our hands on these men, praying over them as Art voices our prayer out loud. Art. Father, it's an honor to pray for our pastors. It's an honor that you give us to be part of a local body of yours that is so focused on worshiping together, teaching truth, and reaching the world with the gospel. So Lord, I can't help but but think that even as Pastor Trey was walking through that text this morning, that each of us who have been pastors, each of our pastors was thinking about something that he was talking about and saying, oh, I'm just don't feel like I'm there. I don't feel like I'm really representing that. God, we know that 
we're not the ones who work our way into worthiness. God, you place a calling upon our lives. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would um, reassure them today, our pastors of their calling, that you would encourage their hearts. God, that you would, even with the men who are standing behind them, the leaders of this church, the members of this church, God, that you would use us to encourage them, to hold them accountable, to speak the truth uh, of your word, to speak as the Holy Spirit moves in us, into their lives, that they would not be disheartened. I pray that, God, that you would keep them close to you, that their time with you alone um, would never be replaced by time and ministry, that you would always draw them to yourself. I pray for their spouses. Lord, I, I pray to even today, God, that you would encourage their hearts, that their husbands are serving a body who loves them, who appreciates them, even in the hard times, especially in the personally hard times that there are those of us who've had a pastor come in the middle of the night to be with us as we walk through the most difficult things. And we'll never forget it. We'll always be grateful. And Lord, I pray for children in their homes who would grow up loving Jesus with their whole heart. That God, that you would help our pastors to understand that each of their kids is gonna grow up looking a little different, having their own personality, and yes, God experiencing their own call upon their lives. Lord, would you grant them patience? And Lord, I pray that out of their homes, you will raise up missionaries who will touch the ends of the planet. And God, as we, as part of this church, God, as we watch them, God, may we not look at this list of healthy qualifications and say, Lord, I'm glad that it's them. That God, that they would model those for us so that all of us would aspire to walk worthy of being used by God Almighty. And may our passion model their passion for the losses in our community and the nations. And I pray God as the Apostle Paul wrote to Philemon that as they get to watch us serve the body of Christ, to engage in the body of Christ, God, would you refresh their hearts as they get to see us maturing and growing and serving and reaching. And God, would you do all of that in their lives and in our lives for the glory of the only one who is worthy, who is Jesus Christ, our King, our Savior, and our soon coming Lord. God, would you do that for his glory? And I pray in his powerful name and all of God's church said, amen.